Hello and welcome to the Spike podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me this week for an EU election special are Spike's deputy editor Tom Slater. Hello. And Spike columnist Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up, we'll be looking at the results in the UK, the wider European picture and what's next for the EU. Both Labour and the Tories having historically abysmal results. She's Angela Merkel's Conservatives have made pretty significant losses. The surging popularity of the Green Party. Spare a thought for the old big two parties in France who've, who've been wiped out. The rise of anti-EU forces. Italia, Marine Le Pen, primo partito in Europa. In Francia, Nigel Farage, primo We voted to leave in a referendum and we haven't. Three years after the vote to leave the EU and two months after the planned departure date, Britain was never supposed to take part in these EU elections. Unsurprisingly, the results were explosive. The Brexit Party romped to victory, winning 32% of the vote. The Brexit Party won in every region of the UK, apart from London and Scotland, and Northern Ireland, where it didn't stand any candidates. It returned 29 MEPs, making it the single biggest party in the European Parliament. In a surprise second place were the Lib Dems, the bollocks to Brexit party. The Lib Dems came top in London and won 20% of the vote nationwide. The two main parties, meanwhile, were slaughtered. The Conservative Party came in fifth place with a measly 9% of the vote, a historic low for a governing party, while Labour came in third place with just 14% of the vote. But while the Brexit party clearly romped home to victory, returning nearly twice as many MEPs as its nearest challenger, much of the media were quick to spin the vote as a victory for Remain. Tom, what did you make of this last minute spin? (laughs) I thought it was really interesting, very funny. We've known for a long time that the elite Remain set are kind of out of touch with ordinary people, but they looked out of touch with reality. You know, you had, uh, you know, one o'clock in the morning, Sean Berry, co-leader of the Greens, on television saying, this is not a win for Nigel Farage's party, when (laughs) directly underneath it is win for the Brexit party. You know, it's absolutely (laughs) ridiculous. The argument that they make, of course, is the fact that if you stack up what they seem to be as the kind of pure Remain parties, uh, the Green Party and Liberal Democrats, that creates a bigger vote share than the Brexit party and UKIP got collectively. But, you know, this is not how elections work is the first point. And also, you know, what do you do about the Conservatives? You know, still the most people who stuck with the Conservatives are probably still leave voters. You know, all of these um, hard Remainers have been calling the Labour Party basically a hard Brexit party for the longest time. And that was on the, the Lib Dems leaflets. It said, if you if you want to stop Brexit, don't vote for not only the, don't vote for the Brexit Party and UKIP, but don't vote for the Conservatives and Labour. Exactly. It's absolutely ridiculous, you know. And it was so clear from the off, they just wanted to get their narrative ahead of the facts. You know, there are even more ridiculous examples of it. Matt Fry from Channel 4 comparing the um, vote share for the hard Brexit Party to that petition to revoke Article 50, as mm. if a few clicks is exactly the same as actually taking the effort to register and then go to a polling station. I think my favourite was Anna Subri of... Change UK, the independent group, the new anti-Brexit party, which scored just 3.4% of the vote after a pretty hilarious um, campaign, suggesting that her party had done better than any of the other genuinely new parties, which presumably excluded the six-week-old Brexit party, which had just won. (laughs) So it's absolutely ridiculous. Um, But I think, again, it just speaks to the fact that, as in all these situations, it doesn't matter how many times Leave voters make their presence felt, they tell people that they're still there, that people still want Brexit, demonstrate that within the Brexit party thing, we can get into the numbers in a second. But nevertheless, it's quite clear that's where the dynamism is at the moment. Um, It's These people are still the ones who control the narrative and they can get away with a hell of a lot, even when they're spinning absolutely, you know, ridiculous stories about it. Ella? 
Yeah, it's funny how many people have short memories in addressing the the election results. I mean, there was a great breakdown in The Guardian, which uh, along the same lines that Tom was describing, calculated the Remain and the Leave vote within the European elections. They put uh, Leave at 47% and Remain at 50% and said, you know, this is good, but it's just a sort of a narrow win for Remain by 586,000 votes. And you think, I mean, that's slimmer than the 5248. <laughs> so the, the goalposts have clearly shifted. Um, and But... I mean, though I was really pleased to wake up and hear the news that the Brexit Party um, had had such a success. And even in London, I mean, my vote, mm-hmm. it, just, it feels good to know that my vote in Hackney did, you know, made some way into actually creating a success there. It's also uh, rather depressing, actually, how completely blind a lot of the political establishment are to this. I mean, I know Alistair Campbell isn't exactly representative of the entire political establishment (laughs) because he's at the sort of nuttier end. But there was, as someone quoted in Spike this week, that tweet from him when he said, uh, even if Nigel Farage won every bloody seat, that there would be no majority and no mandate for no deal. I mean, these people just really don't care. That's part of the problem, that they will spin it any kind of a way, even though at this point we've had you know a referendum and then a general election and MPs voting for Article 50 and manifesto pledges and blah 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 blah. At every point, Brexit has come out on top, and yet we're still discussing the importance of the Remain vote. So, I mean, definitely the work hasn't stopped yet for securing Brexit, and the the fight really has only just begun. But I think that one thing's for sure you know, they cannot ignore the fact that the Brexit party has made such a success. And the more that they sort of bleat about it, the more they sort of dig their own graves mm-hmm. because this is why they failed. And the, the spread of the Brexit party across the country, you know, you yeah. look at those those maps, whether you look at it on the regional level, you know, the entire country basically blue and a blob of a blob of yellow in Scotland and a tiny little dot of uh, orange in, in, in London. Um, it, it's, it's bizarre that they just seem to be in complete denial about this. I mean, Tom, do you want to talk about this? You know, some of the interesting places where the Brexit party won. Yes. No, I think where the Brexit party won and who it draw voters from is really, really interesting. I think one thing that actually is probably a note of caution in this is it is still obviously very heavily reliant on Tory voters. Mm. I think going forward, one of the struggles that the Brexit party will have and also it becoming, you know, a much more broader um, and in that sense stronger force for democracy and for Brexit is for it not to become a kind of Tory party pressure valve or pressure group, you know, just the means through which they get maybe a slightly more hard Brexity leader rather than something which could in its own right become a political movement with real force and real support. So mm. looking at the Ashcroft polls, for instance, 67% of the Brexit party support did come from the Tories, 14% from Labour and of course all of UKIP's vote from last time around went to it. But nevertheless, I think it is worth um, noting first of all that it's estimated to be somewhere between 20 and 30% of Labour voters were pro-leave at the last general election so still it's nothing to be sniffed at and also you've got to look at where it was picking up Labour voters you know Bolsover Dennis Skinner's constituency, 48.5% Brexit party, 16.3% Labour. This is really significant. You had various kind of mining constituencies in South Yorkshire, you know, places where a few years ago they were burning effigies of Margaret Thatcher to mark her death, were suddenly voting for Nigel Farage's Brexit party, who is, you know, for all intents and purposes, a kind of old Thatcherite in many respects. Now, this is not to say that I think, you know, they were misled in any respects. I think this was the right move for them. And I think one thing that Farage has been very um, right about since the vote is to stress the fact that the first thing the Brexit Party have got to do moving forward is to come up with a programme for democratic reform, House of Lords, proportional representation, etc. But my point being that... um, 
it's very clear that even though the Brexit party probably isn't doing as well as it could in Labour heartlands, in pro-Leave Labour constituencies, it's picking up an awful lot of support. And so I think going forward, not only has this been a huge blow to the Tories, obviously, but it's it's presented Labour with this conundrum. And I think it's now really got to answer the question, what is it going to do? You know, what section of its electorate, its metropolitan remainers or its um, uh, more left behind leavers is it going to stick with? Because I think it can't just straddle those two positions anymore. Hello. Yeah, there's been great breakdowns on Twitter about the kind of places that the Brexit party picked up votes. And it's really interesting to look at how little has changed in relation to the actual referendum in mm. 2016, because lots of people speculate about, oh, what is Brexit really about? You know, different people vote for different reasons. But when you look at something like the geographical spread of where the Brexit party picked up votes, I mean, it was most successful in places like Dover and Thanet, coastal areas, and um, as Tom said, former mining and high, former high manufacturing places um, like Wigan and Dudley. And who did best in kind of the Oxford and Cambridges and New university towns, it was the Lib Dem. So mm. there's that very much that split between the uh, the somewheres and the anywheres. The more deprived areas of the country are more supportive of Brexit and more supportive for a vote for change. And the more affluent areas are anti-change or mm. pro-status quo. Or kind of that's where the Lib Dems picked up. So in terms of that, it's, it's a reassertion of the fact that whatever you can say against Brexit in relation to slurs about immigration or little Englanders or stuff, this is a, there's a definite class line here. And there's also a definite line here about the need for political change. But then again, I don't think the Brexit party had a massive fight on its hands. Yeah. In, in many mm. ways, it was really quite an easy thing to sweep up votes, not just because the other parties were so pathetic. I mean, as the election results were rolling in, Heidi Allen from Change UK uh, came out and was asked, do you want to you know, side up with the Lib Dems because it looks like you're going to do really badly? And she said, oh, well, I would like to be in the same vehicle. And then when she was asked, well, does that mean the same party? She says, um, yeah, I don't know. This whole kind of partisan politics thing kind of confuses me. So I mean it wasn't exactly <laughs> like it wasn't exactly like they were facing a kind of mammoth challenge. And I think it's interesting to look at the turnout, which really wasn't drastically um increased since mm. twenty fourteen. It was about thirty six point nine percent. Um and less than the seventeen point four million number of Leave voters actually yeah. voted in the referendum. Nevertheless, despite that, you know, relatively stagnant turnout, Brexit still came out on top. And it was interesting to see that the turnout was actually increasing in Remain areas yeah. and depressed in Leave voting areas. And nevertheless, the Brexit party came on top. Mm. But I, I, I really agree with you. I mean, you know, it, it was clear that the main parties basically vacated the stage in, in, in many ways. The Tories, you know, barely put together a, a, a campaign. You know, there's, there's footage of basically one rally with people standing around awkwardly looking, yeah. you know, looking more like a funeral than a, than a political <laughs> rally. And, um, and of course, you know, the day after the vote, even before the results has been announced, the Prime Minister resigned. My worry is that the Conservative Party will just blame all of this on Theresa May. Oh, yeah. she's a bad leader, but actually, you know, the party itself is fine. That for me is one of the dangers moving forward. The one message we should remember, and this is something which you see across Europe as well, is that um, a big part of this story as well, and why you saw the Lib Dems do well, and why you saw the Greens do so well as well, mm. a big chunk of the Lib Dem support came from the Tories as well. It wasn't yeah. just angry Remainers um, moving away from Jeremy Corbyn is the fact that the main party system, the two main parties created by our first past the post system are just completely discredited at this mm -hmm. point. And even people of a more, shall we say, pro-Remain metropolitan 
bourgeois extraction don't trust these parties to actually, um, or certainly not the Labour Party in particular, to be a vehicle for Remain even. So that's something yeah. really interesting going on was that even in, you know, the relative success of the Green Party and the Liberal Democrats, you're still seeing something really interesting take place, which is this fragmentation and this kind of de-alignment of the old um, political system. And so even in that, I think we're seeing some, you know, we're seeing those new fissures open up, which in and of itself is is quite useful because the big problem with the two-party system at the moment is that it does not reflect the main cleavage in the country, which Mm. as we all know, and we all talk about all the time, is Remain versus Leave. Both the Tories and Labour in their different ways have tried to straddle that divide, try to kind of smother it and try to go back to the old politics very unsuccessfully. So even in the kind of rise of Lib Dems and the Greens, I think this is just the inevitable consequence in this election of the fact that this is the Brexit issue is what we're all polarised around now. And I think finally we can start to see those debates and kind of tensions fought out a bit more clearly going forward. Talking of uh, discredited um, parties and figures, I mean, one of the big stories of the night was the collapse, the total collapse of UKIP, completely Mm -hmm. usurped by the Brexit party. But also people were watching the North West to see whether Tommy Robinson was going to be elected. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he failed that test quite miserably. Ella, I don't know if you want to say something on that. Remarkable fall for UKIP. I mean, they lost 24% since the last election. I mean, that mm. no longer can anyone talk about the kind of anti-immigrant nature behind Brexit or the rise of UKIP or anything like that. It's done, right? Yeah. So like, let's close that a chapter of that book. But the Tommy Robinson thing is interesting, but I think it was inevitable because this is a guy who never really had a very clear plan on Brexit. He's the sort of kind of, he's just a shock jock guy and didn't manage to um, sway voters who have quite a serious position on this big political issue. I think he really mm. underestimated both the intelligence and the seriousness of voters in that area. Um, but I mean, while he lost, I think that there's been a more depressing reaction against his loss. I've read this article uh, by Nick Lowell's from Hope Not Hate, who yeah detailed um, and claimed that, you know, the Hope Not Hate's campaign was what beat uh, <laughs> was what beat Tommy Robinson. So it's quite clear that the it wasn't Hope Not Hate, you know, targeting the sort of nice houses with the nice gardens, with the nice people in it who don't like Tommy Robinson that won it. It was because he didn't have a serious position on Brexit that people wanted to uh, listen to. So, you know, never mind your campaigns against hate and all that kind of thing. It's serious politics that beats people like Tommy Robinson. So moving on to the rest of Europe, um, for the first time, in the European Parliament's history, the two largest groups in the Parliament, the centre-right EPP, European People's Party, and centre-left S&D, Socialists and Democrats, lost their traditional majority. They suffered significant losses across the continent, the EPP losing 4.5% of the vote and the S&D losing 6.4%. There are also a few gains for the Liberals, around 4.1%, largely boosted by President Macron's On Marche party joining the Aldi group. And the Greens also made modest gains of around 3.1%. But most significant, of course, was the populist wave, which showed no signs of crashing. National populist parties topped the polls in Britain, as we've just discussed, Mm. but also in France and Italy, two major EU countries. So let's talk a bit about the rise of the populists first. The way the media has presented this is that the populist wave has been halted, basically. But I'm not sure that's quite... Correct. Tom, what is your view? No, I think that's a very um, boss-eye kind of reading of this. I mean, first of all, because as you just pointed out, you have populist parties topping the polls in three of the most significant EU countries. Mm. You know, this is huge. You know, you've got France and Italy and Britain 
um, delivering people to the European Parliament who either want to, you know, completely rewire the whole thing or leave it altogether. That's incredibly significant. I mean, it's fair to say that there are populist parties, um, particularly right-wing populist parties across Europe, who underperformed or at least didn't meet expectations. The alternative for Deutschland, of course, didn't... did better than it did in the previous Euro elections, but didn't do as well as it did in the recent general elections. There was some talk about um, Vox, this new far-right party in Spain, doing incredibly well. It took a couple of seats, which is significant, but um, not meeting those original expectations. The Sweden Democrats, despite causing a big upset at their general election, again came third. But nevertheless, I think, you know, at what point are we going to recognise that this is a serious shift and this is a serious movement, you know, mm. and that this desire in various EU countries for at least more power being wrested back from Brussels and at most for actually, you know, taking the whole thing down. I think it's ridiculous to ignore that. And I think it's also worth noticing over the course of this campaign. And one thing which I think might be contributing to potentially a slightly more um, patchy performance for some of these populist parties is a lot of them are moderating as well, which is interesting. Now, for instance, you see Salvini um, in Italy, um, who's now become the dominant politician there, Lega, if there was going to be another general election, quite likely to become the biggest party. Um, Lager originally was talking about leaving the Eurozone. It's completely abandoned that now. Now, is that politically savvy in Italy? Probably. I think there's probably a lot of Italian savers who don't like the idea of bringing the lira back all of a sudden. Yeah. But nevertheless, um, in other places, um, St- Sabina Bepler Spoll wrote about this on Spike this week. You know, in Germany, you've got the alternative for Deutschland, who again have suddenly taken um, a much more kind of remain and reform line in relation mm. to the European Union and the Eurozone. Even the left party there is really tempering its rhetoric. And I think that does hit distinctiveness. Now, will that mean that that would have automatically meant a lot of these parties would have done a hell of a lot better came top potentially not one point we constantly return to on this podcast is that with some exceptions a lot of these populist parties are kind of blunt instruments they're not really ideal nor do they perfectly fit around this new desire for change a lot of them are necessarily kind of hard right throwbacks because they're the only kind of machinery around that people can wield against the establishment so it doesn't surprise me at all that a lot of these places aren't fully taking off but on the broad picture, I think it's absolutely ridiculous to pretend like this is a clear um, indication that the populist wave is suddenly rolling back, you know, particularly when we've got this huge fight that's going to only escalate now between Italy and the Commission. I think it's, you know, it's wishful thinking to a ludicrous degree to think that this isn't something which is real and growing and not going anywhere. Absolutely. And and I think what people are missing when they, you know, yes, there hasn't been a huge explosion in, you know, a dramatic rise in populist, but they now are simply an entrenched part of the political landscape. And one significant thing is that they have outlasted, in many ways, the migrant crisis. The migrant crisis was, um, you know, the populist issue, but that peaked in 2015, 2016. And yet populist parties are still very much part of the part of the landscape. And another interesting thing is the way that they are kind of, in some ways, there are some populist parties are doing better than others. And in some countries, populist parties are replacing each other. So in Italy, you have... um, you know, the league suddenly coming on top, overtaking the position of the five star yeah. movement. They're, they're, you know, governing coalition partners. In, in Holland, you know, Thierry Baudet's Forum for Democracy has kind of in the polls replaced Gert Wilders, um, PVV. The populist sentiment isn't going anywhere. And in countries like France, countries like Italy, there actually is no longer really a left right spectrum, but 
in you know both elections in France in particular, the presidential election, these European elections were fought on the terrain of populist and anti-populist. Yeah. So this is not going anywhere anytime soon. I think it might also be a sign not just of it not going anywhere, but this is the start of something. But mm. I think a lot of these European countries are sort of just a bit behind the UK and it's quite clear movement towards a kind of Brexit orientated politics. If you look at Germany, for example, I mean, Sabine Bapleshbar's article is great at detailing that kind of the, the way in which not just the the fact of the AFD, even though it didn't do fantastically well, but also the fact that the way that the Christian Democratic Union fell 6% yeah. and the SDP fell 11%. And that was in the context of, as Sabina writes, you know, uh, Berlin Central Station being uh, plastered with the EU flag for yeah. days on end, with pro-EU leaflets being put out on trains. Um, even as she writes, um, the German Protestant church telling its churchgoers with information about how important voting for you. So there was a big onslaught of yeah pro-EU campaign and yet the main parties who have very especially the SDP have very clear pro-EU positions didn't do very well not only did they didn't do very well but they tanked yeah and so it shows you that actually I think there's a bit of a kind of ground clearing going on in which support for the main parties is being uh, swept away and we have to wait and see what's going to come in that place I mean one of the interesting areas in which that's happening is obviously France yeah where you have the gilets jaunes um, who a large numbers of them in fact I think it was a majority of them voted for uh, the national rally formerly the national front um, which picked up 23.3 percent of the vote in in the elections there. And as Christophe Guy writes in Spiked this week, that is not simply an expression of uh, far-right sentiments. Mm. It's actually the fact that the national rally, as Tom says, is a vehicle for which people to express their anti-EU sentiments. So everything at the moment feels like it's kind of in flux. And while neither side populists nor the kind of centrist technocratic parties can claim a victory yet, certainly it's moving towards something different. Talking about the collapse of the established parties, I mean, I've We've spoken about this many times on this podcast, but the freefall of the centre-left in many countries is still happening and is still remarkable. You know, the Germany's SDP yeah. not only doing very poorly in the EU elections, but also losing some of its local strongholds in the elections on the same day. The French Party Socialiste, which was in government only two years ago, I mean, they knew that it would fare badly, so they actually ran in coalition with other with other left groups and they still only got 6% of the vote, which is absolutely extraordinary the labor party in britain only getting 14% their worst ever you know result in a european elections even the radical left actually doing fairly poorly you know a terrible result for podemos in spain mm. terrible result for syriza in in greece so that's also worth looking out for it's also worth pointing out to the some people on the left and who originally a little bit more sympathetic to the cause of Euroscepticism, who are suddenly taking these results as an opportunity to say that Britain should remain in the European Union mm. on a remain and reform ticket. You look at those results that you sketched out, you are absolutely dreaming if you think this is ever Do going you to know? happen. You yeah. know, Let alone the fact it would take basically the election of what, like 15 socialist governments simultaneously yeah. all completely on the same page about what sort of reforms they would want to do, even to get that stuff started. But nevertheless, I think that level of delusion, particularly we're seeing from the um, British left on that question, is really, really interesting. I think we should also probably quickly touch on on the green wave, yes. as it was called, <laughs> um, which, as Ben Pyle wrote about this week on Spiked, was a bit more of a trickle when you actually look at it. Um, so they increase their vote share across 
um, the EU by about 3%, which yeah. it, I'm not sure if that qualifies as a wave. I mean, it's significant. There are some places in which they did very well. Germany, Germany coming second, of course, in um, Britain, obviously they came fourth. But then they had losses in Sweden, Spain, Austria. You know, there are, there's various places in which they now have zero seats whatsoever. And we should also remember that Aldi, the um, allegedly liberal democratic bloc, actually yeah. did better than them, you know, yeah. in these elections. So I think it's interesting that the rise of the Greens is significant. I think it does speak to that fragmentation of the more mainstream vote and it going off in these in this direction. But again, the fact that on the BBC, on most places, the story of the night was the green wave, despite the fact it's, that that's only part of the story, I think, was interesting way in which all the coverage was rolling. Yeah, I mean, and it's a phenomenon confined solely really to north northwest Europe. Mm. And, and it was interesting to see the Greens come fifth in Sweden, as you alluded to, the home of uh, Greta Thunberg. And actually, if you looked at the polls, the environment was the biggest issue in Sweden, yeah. and yet the Greens only came fifth in, in in that country. Well, it's environmentalist politics have become a kind of bourgeois fetish, and yeah. that they just will not shut up about it, despite the fact that if you look at other parts of Europe, I mean, look at what's happening in France. Mm. I mean, protests weekend on weekend, which were started by a, a reaction against the enforcement of green policies which would affect working people. Look at Italy, which is crippled by the rules on the uh, budget from the EU, which wants to do some drastically new things in relation to, you know, employment, infrastructure, starting new jobs, things that make Greens wince, you know, the idea of progress. All these things are happening, which there's a clear kind of, talk about a wave, there's a clear populist wave across Europe that is against the kind of restrictive status quo measures that green politics are, are inherently about. And yet your Caroline Lucases, your, you know, the green politicians across the continent are continuously going on about the fact that everything needs to stop everything, you know, Mm. no change can happen. We have to basically ignore the masses who want something very different to the elites and only listen to their cherry picked few scientists and your sympathetic politicians. So we have to understand the green vote uh, and the, the kind of the dominance of the green vote in discussion about the media as a very elitist thing, because Mm, it's linked up with that anti-populist movement. And it's all about a sense of removing politics and decisions from the masses and taking Mm. it in hand to the elite. So what's next for Europe? One thing that's important to make clear is that the European Parliament is not a normal parliament. It cannot initiate legislation. Voters aren't voting for a party to form a European government and are often voting on domestic rather than European issues. But nevertheless, the elections that we've just talked about, you know, really provide an important snapshot into public opinion and can have a major impact on domestic politics. So already after its dramatic loss in the EU elections, the Syriza government in Greece has called a snap election that it looks very likely to lose. Salvini's triumph in the Italian elections where his league party overtook his coalition rivals, the Five Star Movement. That has already started to destabilise their governing coalition. Five-star leader Luigi Di Mao has called a confidence vote on himself. So we should, you know, be watching that very closely to see what happens there. And in Brexit Britain, of course, the runaway success of the Brexit party could well push the next leader of the Conservatives to embrace a no-deal Brexit. Let's talk about the Tories first. Mm. I mean... Ella, what effect do you think the success of the Brexit party is going to have on this leadership? I want to call it election. It's a bit of a circus at the moment, I think. (laughs) I tell you what, it is the hardest thing to try and muster up any kind of interest in who's going to be the next Tory leader, (laughs) simply because the party is just such a laughing stock at this point. I mean, there are 11 
candidates. So far. <laughs> so far. All there as are, good as each other. There are several waiting in the wings who are considering throwing their hat in. Um, and, but it's important to note that every single one of so far of those 11 candidates, you know, ranging from Boris Johnson to Michael Gove, Esther McVeigh, Andrea Leadsom, Kit Malthouse, all of them voted for Theresa May's deal at some point. Mm which is really important to remember because despite the fact that, you know, Boris Johnson is seen as quite hard line in relation to no deal, you know, Esther McVeigh said some interesting things about the fact that no deal might not be the end of the world. They have all at one point voted, you know, on a compromise of Brexit. So the extent to which I think we should trust any of them is limited. But one thing's for sure, I think they now need to realise that the general sentiment in the country from, you know, Remainers and Leavers, despite what we've just been talking about, the block of sort of Lib Dem support for a very hardline anti-Brexit, is that in one way or another, we need to get this done. Mm -hmm. And so that D-date, the 31st of October for Brexit, needs to not just be, you know, seen through, but it needs to be seen through in a way that is satisfactory. And, you mm. know, for for, the, for us in this podcast and for many of our listeners, that is a no deal. Um, so, you know, the discussion about compromise and uh, sitting on a fence and, you know, bridging a deal, you know, Kit Mo someone like Kit Malthouse continuously being like, you know, I'm really great at, you know, getting people in a room together and bridging mm. deals. No, just do it and do it properly. Or or Rory Stewart, who's saying what we need is more listening, yeah. more listening, more listening. I mean, we we told you what we want in 2016. Oh. I, I could talk all day about the Rory Stewart thing, but first of all, I think it's, um, no, I agree with all of that. I thought it's interesting as well that the Tories are now actually countenancing a Boris Johnson premiership, which is mm. worth remembering for so long, it was just received wisdom that he would never get on the ballot because he would never get through the parliamentary Tory party to be put before um, Tory members. So I think it speaks on some level to their desperation and on the one hand, you could see that as a very tangible, you know, win for the Brexit party is the fact that at the very least it's making the Tory party, you know, shake out of the sort of stupor it's in on the Brexit issue. But at the same time, I think we do as leavers have to stop binding up all of our kind of hopes for Brexit actually happening within the machinations of the Tory party. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I say to someone who's never really been a supporter of the Tory party, even I've been drawn into this where, you know, you follow the ins and outs, not only of what's going on in Parliament, but what's going on internally within the party so closely, because we all knew that up until this point, it was the only shot really that Brexit had of just about getting over the line in one form or another. Mm. With everything that happened with the deal, with the mess that the Tories are in now, I think we've got to drop that entirely and recognise that we've got to play the long game here and that's about giving the you know the, the Brexit spirit more force in creating new parties creating new kind of political dynamics and not just always just kind of sitting back and being spectators on what's going on in relation to the Tory party I think that's quite significant I've also found the the as we were just talking about the Rory Stewart phenomenon, absolutely fascinating. So over the course of this week, up until recently, he was just kind of junior minister, was promoted to being DFID secretary and has launched this very unlikely um, leadership bid. Um, mm. He's He was a Remainer. He was probably the most um, vocal and articulate proponent of May's deal as a sort of compromise. And in order to stand out, he's been sort of going around Kew Gardens, yeah. barking in Dagnum. Mm. He was in Wigan the other day. Um, it's a long way away. It's a long it's way away. Outside the M25. <laughs> Filming himself or someone filming him, there's some controversy about that, just talking to people and airing this very vague, hopeful view, which is kind of, you know, moves around from being someone that, something that's slightly indistinct to something vaguely spiritual about how we've got to unlock the potential. And just this very kind of strange campaign that he's doing, but the commentary have absolutely lapped it up. Yeah. It's been really fascinating. It's almost this given his kind of background and his sort of um, family's history as kind of colonial administrators, it's almost like this kind of longing they have for the kind of old ruling class taking back 
over control. So it's been very, very interesting. But I, again, the kind of Rory Stewart Twitter phenomenon over the last few weeks, I think, nevertheless, has reminded us how different uh, people's um, in political kind of attention is in the comments for and in the rest of the public at the moment. And let's not forget about Labour. And, and one of the, the astonishing things about the Labour's response to the European elections is that people in that party are able to look at the map of the results and see this giant sea of Brexit party blue. And then they, of course, draw the conclusion that Labour should become a more explicitly Remain party mm. and should vow to back a second referendum. I don't know if anyone has any thoughts on that. All we've been saying on this podcast and elsewhere on Spiked for, well, years now that the Labour Party <laughs> has, <laughs> you forget how long it's been, that the Labour Party has made, as you know, was asked to make a choice and it's made its choice. So its choice is the kind of metropolitan elite Remain side of yeah. the divide. Uh, and that's clear in its response that, you know, it's unwillingness to accept the need to listen to and implement the Brexit vote. I mean, I was listening to the Today programme the other day and my MP, um, Diane Abbott, was being interviewed uh, and she was asked to finish a sentence. He said, the presenter said, finish this sentence. The Labour Party's policy on Brexit and a second referendum is... And Diane Abbott got incredibly angry and said, no, no, I'm not playing parlour games with you. I mean, the fact that they actually can't even, it's this very strange, I mean, wish someone would kind of psychologically analyse them. It's this very strange unwillingness to actually come out and say, we don't like Brexit. We're not going to do it. We're going to have a second referendum. I mean, Jeremy Corbyn has since now come out and made a bit more of a clear statement saying they will have a second referendum Mm. on any form of deal that gets put to Parliament. But the reason why they don't want to say it is because they know it's wrong. I mean, they know how deeply anti-democratic it is. They know how kind of uh, disingenuous they're being. And certainly someone like Corbyn, McDonnell and Diane Abbott, who have, you know, varying degrees of sort of left-wing credentials, Mm. know how damaging what they're doing is for the kind of working class vote. And so it's very sort of sickeningly interesting to watch them squirm at the fact that they have to come to terms with that they have turned into this kind of drippingly bourgeois party. Yeah. It's really interesting. I think the other thing, the argument that's been raging within the Labour Party is, you know, who can we stand to lose? You know, so you've yeah. got the more Romani side who are obviously saying, look at the support we're losing to the Liberal Democrats. Um, we've got to get off the fence. We've got to back a second referendum. You know, Tom Watson, Emily Thornbury, these are the people making these arguments. And on the other side, you either have MPs who are just in leave constituencies, people like Gloria De Piero or um, Lisa Nandy, who are just making the point that no, we cannot, you cannot um, abandon our working class leavers. I think it's entirely um, possible that both of them are right. You know, on the one hand, if they do even go down this incredibly soft Brexit route, they're going to really alienate the kind of, um, not just the FBPE crowd, but, you know, kind of metropolitan Remainers in general. Of course, since the 2017 election, their electorate is far more middle class and far more Remainer than it was previously, um, which is important to remember. But at the same time, um, it's not clear that Labour has a winning majority and a winning coalition without working class leavers either. You know, 78% of the 45 seats it wants to gain off the, or it would need to gain off the Conservatives to win the next general election voted to leave, you know. So a lot of these very key seats are really important. But also on the broader point, the Labour Party exists to represent the people in places like Bolsover. Yeah. (laughs) The idea that, you know, this is not purely a question of strategy and how to compose the right kind of coalition. It's also a question of what the Labour Party is actually for. Mm. And if it was for what, um, particularly the Corbyn Easters like to think they're bringing back to the party to represent and give voice to the working classes in the country, then 
the idea that they should crush what was broadly speaking a working class revolt against the establishment in order to get this is absolutely ridiculous. I think I think that this is actually more significant than Blair's clause four moment because it's one thing to abandon a policy of socialism, but here they're trying almost trying to bin universal suffrage itself yeah. and say that really you know the votes in the north, the votes of people outside of London simply do not count as much as the votes in metropolitan Remain in London or or you know, in the cities and places mm. like that. By the time that Clause 4 got scrapped, it's re- it really only had symbolic value. Yeah. It didn't mean very much. Overturning Brexit isn't just symbolic. It will have a material effect on people's ability to engage with democracy. I mean, if you've set a precedent that say that a ruling elite can overturn the democratic wishes of ordinary working people, <laughs> what kind of future politics are you setting up? And if you are, you cannot claim to be a party of the masses, you know, the you know, let's repeat the Labour uh, slogan for the many, not the few. You cannot claim to be that if mm. you're acting within the interests of the few uh, against the many. So let's just drop the idea that the Labour Party is in any way, shape or form a kind of has any democratic sentiment or further workers. I mean, it's also interesting that the people that are coming to the fore now, I think Jeremy Corbyn's days might well be numbered because you've got people coming to the fore like Tom Watson, you know, on the right of the party, Emily Thornbury, who's, you know, had her flirtations with Corbyn for the yeah. last couple of years. But let's remember, you know, is the wife of a knight, is the MP in Islington, has very kind of very clear and deliberate political interest in relation to the future of the Labour Party. I can, I can, you know, even someone like McDonnell is sort of publicly often coming out with statements that seem to contradict what Corbyn's saying. Mm. So, you know, the future of the Labour Party is, as we all know it, a kind of centrist, perhaps maybe even rightish kind of viewpoint. And, you know, why would anyone with any kind of interest in the future of the working class want to be interested in that? Let's go back to Europe for a second. One of the big changes in the European uh, Union coming up will be the change of who is going to be the president of the commission. And, you know, unofficially, informally, since the last European elections, the, the EU has adopted what they call a Spitzenkandidat system. It's obviously a German word meaning lead candidate. And all the these I- German words. All these German words. It's a German <laughs> institution, of course, as we know. So the idea behind the Spitzenkandidat system is that in theory, you know, your combined votes across Europe you know, if people vote for the centre-left parties or if people vote for the centre-right parties in bigger number, their lead candidate should be the president of the European Commission. But things have gone slightly wrong. As we as we alluded to earlier, the centre-left and the centre-right don't have their governing majority. But the system always had its flaws anyway. I mean, Manfred Weber, you know, really, as the winner in, in all of this, the EPP did get the most votes out of any party is looking like he's not going to get anywhere near the top job. But then again, did people really vote for him anyway, even if they were voting for centre-right parties? There was an interesting survey that said that just 29% of Germans had heard of um, Manfred Weber. And, you know, he's been working in the European Parliament for 15 years and has been totally unable to make an impact. The other kind of potential candidates are Margarita Vestager, who um, is Macron's preferred candidate. She led the Audi list, who came third in the in the election. So, according to EU logic, that means she probably won. And, um, <laughs> moral and, victory, a moral victory, yeah, because they because they rose a bit, because, and and so there could be some horse trading to put her in place. And then finally, the most interesting candidate, in my view, is our friend uh, Michel Barnier, mm. who. Eagle-eyed, uh, eagle-eyed listeners will notice that he didn't stand for election. So that will be a very interesting issue. In it could be that the EU Council 
simply decides to install an old favourite of theirs yeah. and um, they're the ones who lead Europe and the kind of electorate sideline totally. Mm. I mean, the Spitz and Candidat system was always, or I say always, since it was tried at the last um, election or since it was used at the last election, was always just one of these things that was a bit of a fig leaf. It was yeah. just an attempt to try and make the process look that little bit more democratic and make the commission look that little, that little bit more connected to how ordinary people in the EU vote. But the way it's broken down is A, not surprising, but B, it just shows the dysfunction of this whole process. I mean, mm. it's interesting that you get to a position where the reason that um, Weber can't take his rightful place, it seems like, is because the EPP didn't do so well um, in the in the EU election. But at the same time, as the horse trading is carried on, you know, you see Michel Barnier becoming this kind of preferred candidate, despite the fact he's from the EPP, and as you say, he didn't stand in these elections. So yeah. again, it just speaks to the fact that so much of this um, and particularly in terms of Macron um, and his MEPs joining joining the Audi group, so much of this is really just bitchy infighting within the same old blob. Yeah. You know, that we can talk about the rise of the the Liberals and Democrats, the rise of the Greens in this process, but really this is the same kind of EU swamp, for lack of a better phrase, <laughs> um, fighting for their own positions. And I think, you know, the, the battle over who's going to be the next commission president has made that all the more clear. It's always been the case that um, even, you know, as I said earlier, it's not legislation isn't initiated by the EU Parliament, but even when it gets rubber stamped by the EU Parliament or when amendments are made in the EU Parliament, these are all really done via backroom deals between the yeah. parties, not done by, you know, people debating on the floor on the on the real on the issues that are about to affect, you know, five hundred million people. So I mean even though uh, there might be some new configuration in the you know, that leads to a leads to support for the, you know, head of the European Commission that might feature a sort of semi coalition between left, right, centre, maybe even green. Nothing really has has changed as a result of these elections. But I think what has perhaps changed is the ability of people to be aware of what actually goes on within mm. the EU. Even if it's just from, you know, like as I watched the documentary Behind Europe, yeah. which was just a fascinating insight into everything you ever feared and dreamt about the EU, that it's basically just a small bunch of people making deals over coffee or late night meals. Mm. And it's incredibly bitchy and it's incredibly snide. <laughs> and, you know, it's it's sort of in many ways actually incredibly apolitical. It sort of is just a sense of making sure that things are technocratic, what works rather than what people actually want. I mean, for the future of um, a kind of populist wave of in Europe, there has been talks about there being linked up between, you know, Salvini and Marine Le Pen and questions yeah. over whether Farage will um, link up with that sort of right wing populism. And I think that those of us who want to see a kind of left wing populism might think about how we can uh, work within that. But certainly there's something has started and the genie has been let out of the box in many ways that they you cannot quell this populist surge. I think what we should be pushing for, um, those of us in Britain, is a more, you know, saying, okay, we want Brexit. We're going to get Brexit, hopefully. But now it's time for a Frexit, a Grexit, and a Rexit mm. push for a kind of internationalist approach to um, an anti-EU stance. And let's see where it takes us. Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. If you enjoyed the show, why not give us a rating and a review and don't forget to subscribe. For more Spike content or to make a donation, just go to spikes-online.com.